0: Hey everyone, it's Glenn from Spacing Radio. If you're a regular listener, this is not a regular episode. And if you're just tuning in, welcome. We've been working through the pandemic to bring you a special series. It's one where we speak to expert guests and Canadian mayors from communities large and small. And to begin this special series, we have to make the case for local
1: power. Yes, well, the the constitution says that municipal institutions are within provincial jurisdiction.
0: This is Natalie Derosier, principal of Massey College at the University of Toronto, lawyer, former Ontario Liberal MPP, and member of the Order of Ontario and Order of Canada.
1: So this fiction that the somehow the province create the cities and therefore can undo them, uh, interfere with them, or make them better or less. And it's completely within the discretion of the province. That's what's at stake. That's what worries people. And that has caused some trouble in Canada.
0: She was a member at Queen's Park in 2018, when Premier Doug Ford shocked the country by intervening in a number of municipal elections while they were already underway. Most notably, slashing the number of city council seats in Toronto in half.
1: Our constitution does not protect sufficiently uh, municipalities. So they can't plan because they're always at the mercy of a change of government at the provincial level.
0: For Derosier and others, the move was a powerful example of the lack of municipal autonomy in Canada.
1: Generally, I think we recognize now that the vision of cities as being the creatures of the province that was a 19th century fiction just doesn't work in the 21st century. Cities... In order to be drivers of the economy, but also to be human rights actors and protect the rights of everyone, must have the tools to govern efficiently.
0: I'm Glenn Bowerman, and this is City in Sight Canada's constitutional city crisis.
1: Ideas need to move. It's the right time to create new ideas to solve this problem.
0: In this series, we'll explore the sometimes fraught relationship our local governments have with their provincial and federal counterparts and explore ways of reimagining that relationship. Lisa Helps, mayor of Victoria, British Columbia, says the city has a good relationship with higher orders of government. That said, the city does struggle with a lack of predictable funding. If Victoria had more access to funds or discretion to spend it, it would be easier for the city to realize its priorities.
2: We're a provincial capital, uh, as you know, and so that makes us very close to the provincial government. We're we're right here where they are. Uh, And for me, when I took office, the very first call I made before I was sworn in, after I uh, won the election, so I was elected on Saturday, and the first call I made was to Premier Christy Clark's office to say, you know, what are you working on and how can we help? I think looking for that alignment was a really good way to start. And and so with the Liberal government, we had a good working relationship. Then they lost the election. The NDP was elected. Same thing, pretty good working relationship, particularly on issues like climate change and housing. Uh, and, And same with the federal government. After the last election, we made a trip to Ottawa pretty quickly to introduce ourselves to the new prime minister and the new minister's so I would say, you know, over the last five or six years, the relationships, regardless of who's been government, have been very positive and, and looking for those points of connection and collaboration and how we can keep mutually uh, agreed upon agendas moving forward.
0: And uh, just because, you know, it's, it's a different story in every province, can, can you sort of explain what the BC uh, Community Charter is? That seems to be a, a relationship that's maybe unique to the province
2: yeah i can't I can't comment on governance arrangements in other uh, provinces, but the community charter is the provincial piece of legislation that gives local governments their their power and authority in british columbia. Uh, it It outlines what we can do and what we can't do and and basically governs our relationship with the provincial government.
0: The thing first and foremost on everyone's mind is is the covid nineteen pandemic. I noticed that um early on in the pandemic, the provincial government. Made a special allowance for cities to run deficits to be paid back at the end of 2021, which I think some people might think that cities can already do, but but they can't actually run deficits. They're supposed to break even, as you know, uh, at the end of every fiscal year in terms of operating expenses. So that was a kind of unique thing that I noticed.
2: Yeah, and, and not entirely helpful at all. What we're what we're working on right now, we've formed a BC Urban Mayors Caucus here in British Columbia, so big city mayors from across the province, from the coast to the interior to the north, and we're using the opportunity right now uh, with the provincial election to talk about the need for a new fiscal relationship between municipalities and the provincial and, and federal governments. There was a report that was done in 2012 by the Union of BC Municipalities, which is the organization that uh, represents and advocates to the provincial government on behalf of municipalities. And basically what it it argued quite compellingly is that local governments are reliant only on property taxes, Mm -hmm. which is basically $0.08 of every tax dollar that people pay is what local governments get. Uh, Yet in British Columbia and across the country, we're responsible for maintaining, building and improving uh, about 60 percent of all infrastructure. So um, the uh, the ability to run a deficit is, is really meaningless when the only ability we have to collect revenue, the main ability we have to collect revenue is through property taxes. So I think, you know, we've had you asked originally about our relationship. We have a very good relationship with both the federal and provincial government. But across the country, uh, local governments need uh, different ways uh, of accessing predictable, sustainable revenue flows so that we can continue to deliver for our residents.
0: Right. And and, uh, has there been any talks about what that might look like? Uh, I know some cities have been talking about potentially asking the province for the ability to have a sales tax, that kind of thing. Uh, What kind of financial tools would the city of uh, Victoria be looking for?
2: in in this instance uh, it's not just the city of victoria this call is is coming through the bc urban mayors caucus so myself and and 12 other big city mayors from across the province that are that are asking for this a range of tools could be possible so one idea is to give cities 1% of the pst on an annual basis mm-hmm. to allow us to use that uh, in a in a non discretionary way to deliver on the priorities Uh, in our communities Uh, another idea would be to give cities uh, you know and all local governments not just the 13 of us obviously but give cities a certain share of uh, percentage of GDP you know on a year over year basis Uh, again to invest in roads and sewers and bike lanes and parks and libraries Mm -hmm. so those are those are two of the easiest ones to explain The, the benefit of doing that is you know For example, right now, if we want to put in a new library or a community center or a swimming pool or a water system, we apply for grants. And the provincial government either says, yes, this is a worthy project or no, this isn't a worthy project. And we either have to live with that and get the funding or not. If we don't get the funding again, it's back to property taxes and borrowing to finance it. Whereas if we had predictable, sustainable funding, we knew that every year we were getting 1% of the PST distributed per capita uh, across the province. We'd be able to say, OK, in five years, we'll be able to pay for our library or our you know, water system or whatever it is. So that's the kind of thing that we're looking at.
0: Beyond the financial, Mayor Help says Victoria could use a little more authority to actually act on some of the decisions made at a local level and to act quickly.
2: If we're going to really tackle climate change, either cities need more authority from uh, provincial and federal governments to deal with some of the issues uh, related to climate change mitigation and adaptation, or we need to see quicker action from senior levels of government. So, for example, the City of Victoria banned single-use plastic bags in December of 2017. Our bylaw came into effect in July of 2018. We were taken to court by the Plastic Bag Association of Canada we won, they appealed, we lost, we petitioned the Supreme Court to be able to appeal, they said no, Uh, you know, and then three years later, almost four years later, just before the provincial election was called here, the minister, uh, provincial minister gave us permission to enact our bylaw. And then about three weeks later, the federal government announced that they were also going to ban plastic bags. So, you know, if we had that authority, and, and the whole court challenge was, do we actually have the authority to do this or not? That's right. a lot of time wasted in court to do what is simply the right thing. And what everybody agrees now, these years later, that is the right thing. So, in addition to new fiscal tools which doesn't mean new taxes uh, in my opinion mm-hmm. we also need that you know that authority to uh, tackle some of the the challenges that we're seeing in, in our communities that are of benefit if we tackle them on a local level it's of benefit to senior levels of government
0: Speaking of some of those other things, uh, I want to talk about uh, specifically with you, uh, the, the issue of the housing crisis, the overdose crisis, two things that were already brutal for, for people before the pandemic. And, and has it seems now the, the pandemic has aggravated that. How, how could cities be empowered to, to better address those crises?
2: Well... I mean again it goes back to authority and and finances. So with 8 cents of every tax dollar that local governments get, we we don't have the same resources as the provincial government to buy motels or buy land, you know, install modular housing. Here in British Columbia, I, I don't know that w- with respect to housing that we need that authority. Mm-hmm. Uh, BC Housing is a fantastic organization and we work very, very closely with them. So they buy land, they build modular housing. And, you know, I think what, what we can do to help and support is make our development processes quicker, uh, waive them where necessary. You know, it, it would be great, actually, if, if there was an affordable housing project, the power to simply not hold a public hearing or do any consultation, just say this is a community need and this is where this is going. So it would be great to have that kind of authority devolved to us. Uh, The opioid crisis is clearly a health issue and local governments are clearly not health care providers. So uh, I I don't want authority to do too much because then comes with it the responsibility. And we've got parks and sewers and roads and crosswalks and libraries and community centers and swimming pools uh, and all of those things that no one else is going to do.
0: While Mayor Helps enjoys a decent relationship with her higher-order counterparts, Don Iveson, Mayor of Edmonton and Chair of the Federation of Canadian Municipalities' Big City Mayors' Caucus, has experienced a little more friction. He once described the experience of being a mayor in Canada as sitting at the kids' table.
3: You know, Peter Mansbridge said it pretty well the other day when he was speaking to the Alberta Urban Municipalities Association. He said it's long been true that Ottawa has most of the money, the provinces have most of the power, uh, but most of the problems and most of the responsibility uh, wash up on the shores of local governments, urban and rural, English and French, north and south. And I think that's one of the reasons why there's a remarkable unity among local governments on this point. But particularly in our largest cities where we see some of the country's most complex challenges and most important opportunities being not completely addressed by all three orders of government working collaboratively together that, you know, on the ground, mayors and councillors and community leaders really see the gaps in the system. And it's sort of like watching from the, the kids table as the as the parents make all the decisions when you know you have wisdom but are still being sort of considered... Second or third class
0: I think for this topic, I think it might be helpful for our listeners if, if you uh, told us a little bit about the story of the Edmonton City Charter.
3: So there have been discussions in Alberta for more than a decade about charter legislation for Edmonton and Calgary, recognizing that you know these two units of, of community and and governments, with capacity really were, and and my friend, uh, the mayor of Calgary would often remind people that, you know, jurisdictionally, the city of Calgary would be the fifth largest province in Canada if it was off on its own. So not just on the basis of scale, though, but on the, the basis that, you know, cities could be entrusted with more delegated authority um, and and might be able to get better leverage for public dollars and also had particular needs that not all other municipalities share so, so um, all to say that for reasons of scale, for reasons of special need uh and then some special categories of infrastructure and and that was the premise for why special uh, powers could uh could accrue to Edmonton and Calgary and and more autonomy to use different tools up to and including ultimately having a greater ability to collect revenue based on that economic activity uh and and we never got far on the revenue tools but where we did get to in the rise and fall of all of this was uh, a piece of legislation that for a time was the most progressive uh, and innovative intergovernmental partnership between big cities and a province and a provincial government. And it contained a revenue sharing measure in place of the traditional infrastructure grants, uh, which were conditional. This was transitioning to, you know, as provincial revenues grow, uh, your grant will grow. And it also had risk sharing. So if provincial revenues contracted as they have right now, there'd be a contraction in the infrastructure grant. There was also guaranteed long-term transit funding, that was put in place in anticipation of the federal government making a permanent commitment uh, to long-term mass transit infrastructure funding to allow us to continue building out not just our light rail system, but ultimately uh, rapid bus connections uh, across our region to our airport, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we had the most robust, politically protected, um, platform-embedded, legislated city charter in the country. For about a year. <laughs> for yeah, for about a year uh, didn't actually come into effect until down the road, so we never we never benefited from it because um, yeah. the legislation was repealed, and that just indicated to me that essentially, without deeper protection for special status for cities, you know uh, the promises are you know really not worth anything. sadly, so that just That's speaks to orders. the fragility of cities as creatures of the provinces.
0: Right. And and that, that term, creatures of the provinces, comes up quite a lot. We've been talking about it in Toronto uh, after Bill 5 when the Premier, uh, Doug Ford, changed the amount of seats that we could have on Toronto Council in the middle of an election. And I, I know you spoke out against that publicly. So big cities all over Canada are having this talk about what is to be done with this idea of cities being creatures of the province? What should be done?
3: Well, it's a great question. Um and, and I think we we'll, may wind up with uh, 10 different answers across the country in 10 different provinces. And policy competition may be the way we get past this. But all we have is sort of advocacy to push back. It's a classic power imbalance uh, relationship. And, and so we've got to continue to try to convince Canadians it's the right thing to do. But really, I think convincing premiers one-on-one that this is the way they're going to achieve their economic goals because the units of jurisdiction that really matter to people uh, and to investors uh, and to tourists and others making choices are are cities they're going concerns they're they're uh, they 're real tangible things as opposed to provinces which are fabricated though historically rooted arbitrary unit of jurisdiction so they 're pretty abstract uh, outside of a regulatory context and this is why again I think. It would be great if we could have a constitutional convention and and really talk this through and have a national strategy about it. But but frankly, getting seven out of 10 premiers to agree that add up to the amending formula like we've done the math and like every other Canadian, you just kind of roll your eyes when you think about a constitutional answer to this. Uh, so I think I think competition will have to sort it out unless there's a will uh, to take some other steps. Now the one thing that is shifting here is that we do have a, a federal government that sees cities and city regions as important partners, values input from mayors in crafting the national policy direction, and is prepared to work directly with cities uh, and agencies on the ground on everything from housing to the pandemic. If a provincial government refuses to work together with local partners or work with the federal government and so that that doesn't change the fundamental opportunity for provinces to flex their jurisdiction over municipalities but to the extent that as peter mansbridge said the power of the purse is is what uh, you know money talks in this country the federal government is in a position to put conditions as they did during the safe restart agreement Relief funding, although it took six months, when it finally did come, it, it did achieve a lot of what we were looking for in terms of support for public transit and operating losses municipalities were facing and support for vulnerable people. So... So, having an ally in the federal government that sees the the value of these metropolitan units and their special needs and uh, and and the dividend of investing um, in in our country 's cities is helpful, but that will ebb and flow too over time, so that won 't fundamentally change the game till a new logic uh, uh, emerges about the importance of our country's metropolitan areas to the success and prosperity of every Canadian. Just like we have a narrative about this, the importance of our rural and remote communities and northern communities and sovereignty, you know, there is a bit of a consensus around that. We don't have that around cities yet. It's emerging in Ontario for after many, many decades of back and forth. I think it's going strong in BC. I actually think it's it's emerging in its own way in, in Quebec right now. And then you just have cities just lapping their... Their provinces, where they can, like Halifax, which is just booming right now, and is essentially the, you know, solidifying its position as the economic capital of um, of Atlantic Canada. And so there's there's um there's a logic and a math uh, to cities because of their power to multiply talent and capital and real infrastructure to drive wealth creation and prosperity. That will mean inevitably the future is more and more urban. But mm-hmm. I want to make sure that there's Room for everyone in that narrative, from the farmers to the fishers to the foresters, uh, indigenous communities that that rely on on the cities for services um, and where cities are not the bad guys, but cities are part of a stronger country and a stronger future for Canadians
0: in terms of the people in these cities advocating for their own autonomy, I do find it difficult sometimes to. Communicate why this might be important and and to get people excited on on a municipal level, even though that is the level of government that you know everyone has the most direct access to it's it 's the level of government that you 'll notice when it stops working uh, first and foremost. so how do you energize everyday citizens of Canadian cities? How do you get them to care about these kind of things?
3: I wish I had the silver bullet <laughs> to that question because <laughs> we have spent you know many days talking about it with experts and community leaders through initiatives like the Urban Project um, and, and with the big city mayors and then up at night afterwards trying to figure out how do we make this compelling for people? And it's been the crises that have that have captured attention and, and got people talking about it, like what happened with the seat restructuring in Toronto, or to some degree what happened with the, the city charter here. You know, my chief of staff joked, you know, it was really hard to, um, and this, this was coping humor, black humor, but it was really hard to get people to care about the city charter until we lost it. And then people understood mm-hmm. how important it was. So the sad thing is it really is that the country is not set up to thrive in, in this regard. And that's not, a, that's not a warm and fuzzy message to bring to people. But again, there is a, there is a better way. I mean, obviously, I haven't got it down to, uh, to, uh, to a single elevator pitch for why leaning into our cities would be good for all Canadians. But I think it's a sustained campaign. Uh, and I think there is change happening. It's glacial, but I think it is happening. Uh, and I think it's through each crisis where uh, cities are, are treated in, um, like, like children, and where that's plain to see for for Canadians that you know it notches forward a little bit each time.
0: Our current constitutional understanding of Canadian cities belongs to a different world. Over a century and a half ago, when our legislators could hardly conceive of the world we face today. A world of skyscrapers and rapid transit, skyrocketing populations, and a climate crisis threatening all human existence. With a majority of Canadians living in urban settings, city governments have a massive responsibility they need the tools and authority to fulfill. And we'll continue to explore how on the next City Insight. Until next time, I'm Glenn Bowerman. Thank you to our guests, Natalie DeRosier, Mayor Lisa Helps, and Mayor Don Iveson. I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music. City Insight is made in partnership with Spacing Magazine and Massey College. Executive producers are Alan Kaspersky and Matthew Blackett. Creative consultant is Darren Chow. This podcast was made possible by Massey College, the Maytree Foundation, and the Government of Canada's Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. For more on our constitutional city crisis, the Massey City Summit will take place April 7th and 8th, 2021. Check out masseycitysummit.ca for updates about speakers and registration.